Well, today's character is Caleb, and of all the biblical characters, this is probably the easiest one to find a subtitle for. He is known as a man with a different spirit, a different spirit to that of the world. And if you want a sub-subtitle, a man with a different spirit who served the Lord wholeheartedly. That's his epitaph. So it's certainly a character we need to look at. Caleb is very much defined by one particular passage in Numbers, and the context is the following. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they were on the way to the promised land. They'd had various ups and downs along the way, and they'd reached the edge of the promised land in the wilderness or the desert of Paran. They're just about to enter the promised land. And Moses organizes a scouting party of 12 men, one from each tribe, who are, have been selected to check out the land and in preparation for going in and taking possession of it. As part of the 12, they are listed in, in numbers. The two key characters are Caleb, who's the son of Jephune, who comes from the tribe of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Nun, who's from the tribe of Ephraim. There is a, quite a long passage which we need to read together, uh, so bear with me as we work our way through it and uh, get some sort of picture of the character of Caleb. So we're reading from Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 17. Moses has just selected the, the 12 men to go on the scouting party. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, I've been practicing those names, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron was built, had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried in it a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes that the Israelites cut off there. Eshkol means cluster. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Here comes the report. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified, and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it, my emphasis. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. 
and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Moving on to chapter 14. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. <laughs> At that point, the congregation say, that starts to aim to stone Caleb and Joshua. The Lord announces his plan to smite with pestilence and dispossess the people of Israel. And we have a, a, a passage where Moses appeals to the Lord asking for forgiveness. So we take up the story a few verses further on. In verse 20 of chapter 14, this is the Lord's response to Moses' plea. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And finally, on a few more verses, Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have, re have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I... The Lord have spoken, note the four capital letters, that's Yahweh, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. 
Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. But there's more to that story, as we, as we shall see. It must be terrible to have your name recorded in Scripture for the wrong reasons. Paul, in one of his letters, refers to two women who are involved in some dispute, and he commends them as really faithful servants, but have got into some sort of an argument which is wrecking their faith and encourages the whole community to get behind them and help them resolve their dispute. But they're, they're named, named and shamed, if you like. Hopefully they did you know, uh, no uh, restoration. The ten spies who came, came back with an unfavorable report and eventually died in the wilderness are named in Scripture. They're named and shamed. Maybe they, they did re repent later on, but their names are there for all to see. I didn't read them out, but they're there. And it's easy to, to have a superficial view of these 12 men. There were two who were courageous and wanted to enter the promised land, and ten who were cowardly. That would be an oversimplification. These ten men were chosen as proven leaders. They'd seen God's provision and deliverance many times. Seen God provide food and water during the time in the, in the wilderness. They'd seen God's direction with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And now they're ready for the final push. They had proven qualities of courage, of leadership. However, the essential qualities that God is looking for here is not primarily courage. Courage was not primarily the issue. In fact, after the Lord gives his judgment on the rest of the Israelites, minus Joshua and Caleb, and says they will not inherit the, the promised land, they decide to go up to the ridge and attack the Amalekites. They suddenly become bold and think, well, we will have a go and try to enter the promised land without the Lord's blessing and against the Lord's express command. They'd missed their chance and they were routed as a result. Courage, though important, is not the main issue. It is a quality that is exhibited by Joshua and Caleb, but not the fundamental one. The first quality of Caleb is that he is a man of a different spirit, consecrated to God. The word different is the word holy. Having a, a holy spirit is a different spirit, distinct from, from the world. The Hebrew word for holy is kodesh, and it means apartness, set-apartness, separateness, sacredness. And the, the word holy has the idea of heaviness, weight of glory. In the New Testament, in the Greek, the word hagios also means set apart or reverent, sacred, worthy of veneration. And Caleb and Joshua demonstrated what we could call a consecrated life. Now, consecrated means con, which means with, and sacred means holy. It's with holiness, an attachment to holiness, a determination in your, your spirit to be with God, to spend time with God. So that's the, the foundation of a different spirit that Caleb demonstrated. We may ask why Caleb seems to be singled out rather than Caleb and Joshua. And simply the reason is that Joshua is or becomes the, the leader. Caleb is the, the main foot soldier who exhibits the, these qualities. So it's 
a way of highlighting uh, the, the godliness of one who was not pr the prime leader. But both could be bracketed under these qualities. I want to highlight five qualities after this fa fundamental one of consecration that Caleb exhibits. Firstly, vision. He saw the land as the possession of God's people. He saw Hebron as his inheritance, which he later takes up. The ten saw things in the natural. Caleb saw things in the spirit. He had a vision of God. And we can cultivate vision simply by reading the word of God, by seeing things from his perspective. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that God has prepared works for us beforehand. And the more we get into the word of God, the more we get an idea of the picture of what God has prepared for us. Secondly, faith or faithfulness. These two qualities are inextricably linked because if you believe in someone or something, you should automatically be faithful to him or her or to the cause you espouse. Caleb and Joshua had complete trust in God to help them succeed. They believed that God would do as he promised. Numbers 14.8, which we just read, says, If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now, the context is that God had provided many times during the Exodus. There were ten occasions in total throughout Exodus and Numbers where the people grumbled and complained that God provided, provided food with quail, with manna. He provided water with a beautiful oasis at Elim. The Israelites had complained about lacking various foods. Melons, leeks, cucumbers, onions and garlic are all listed. They claimed they had all of those in Egypt. I'm not sure that was the case because they, they lived as slaves for many years. So how much access that they had to this rich variety of vegetation is questionable. But now they can have them in abundance if they believe. Faith is also reasonable. And I believe we do need to underline that because there is a train of thought, I suppose, uh, in modern society to, to condemn faith as being something irrational, that it's something you work up and try, try to believe against all the evidence. But in fact, faith reasons from God to the difficulties, whereas unbelief reasons from difficulties to God. What do I mean by that? Jesus says that if you speak to a mountain and say, move from here today, it will move. If we speak to the mountain, that whatever challenge we have in life, it will move. It's not as though we're speaking to God to get him to move his plans for us, to make the task easier. It's not as though we are acting in unbelief and saying, Lord, this task is too hard for me. Please give me an easier task to follow. It is acknowledging there is a mountain, but because we are one with God, we are trusting in God, he will enable us to achieve the goal. God said, I want you to leave Egypt. However, he might have add, added, and this is what happens, happened, the Egyptians will pursue you, they will threaten you, you will experience hunger and thirst and discomfort on various occasions, but you will get to the promised land. Don't expect an easy ride, but also don't ask to go back to Egypt or to have 
an end goal which is less than the promised land, less than the, the real blessings that I have in store for you. Sadly, and that's been the case throughout history, some people who have started on the Christian life do go back into the world. That's illustrated graphically in the parable of the, the sower. And it could be because of difficulties or it could be because of they can't, can't cope with luxury. But many people do not follow all the way through. We may ask, well, what if mountains don't move? Well, sometimes that is the case. Paul talks of his thorn in the flesh. That mountain didn't move. But if that's the case, it's there for a greater purpose. And ultimately, it made him stronger and makes us stronger. Faith is not irrational. It's not a question of imagining something to be true and not facing up to the fact. In fact, the very opposite is true, as is illustrated in this passage in Numbers. Lack of faith means that we are prey to exaggerated fear, having a distorted picture of the enemy's strength, which is why we've got an exaggerated negative report from the ten spies. And if you look at it carefully, it's almost comical if it wasn't, wasn't so tragic. They refer to the descendants of Anak. Now, Anak is, well, the original word means neck, and it refers to some quite tall people with, with high necks, and they were feared uh, greatly. And as a result, the, because there were a few tall people in the, the promised land, we have the description of the spies feeling like grasshoppers and saying that the inhabitants of the land see us as grasshoppers. Well, they probably didn't even speak to them, so I don't know where they got, got that impression. And they start to exaggerate the en enemy's strength. So often it's not faith that, that is irrational, it's lack of faith which is irrational. It distorts what, what the enemy can do and gives, blinds us to the reality. Faith sees the victory and brings a good report and sees with God's eyes. It's interesting to see that with a lack of faith, there is a subtle change of language. Uh, when Wendy and I got married, we learned a couple of very good phrases to avoid. And it's very good advice for newlyweds. Two things you must never say. And we had to bite our tongues for a while not to say either you always do whatever you do, or you never do whatever. Don't say you always or you never. End of marriage counsel. Just needs a slight bit of determination to change, change your language. The scouts were quite sloppy with their language. They used the phrase, when talking to Moses, the land where you sent us, instead of the land which the Lord promised. They turned the blame on Moses. They did acknowledge that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, which means a land abundant in flocks, plentiful in, li in livestock, and also sap-giving trees. The Hebrew word for honey, translated as honey, is divash. It conveys the idea of sweetness and does not specifically refer to bees' honey. So it's, it's very general about fruit in, in abundance. The sad thing is the majority of spies confirm that the land is good. It's exceedingly good. But they state that the land's people cannot be defeated. There's a lack of faith despite the evidence of the fruit. In the passage we read, it says that there, were, there was a cluster of grapes so large that you needed 
two strong men holding a pole at either end to carry it. Now, that may seem a bit fanciful. We may think, can grapes really be that big? Yes, they can. Slight digression here. I don't know if any of you have heard of the community of Alma Longa. Right, okay, this might take a few minutes. I first heard of Alma Longa in about 1999-2000, so quite a few years ago. Alma Longa is a community of about 16,000 people in Guatemala. And up until about the mid-90s, it was known for a very high crime rate. It was a pretty awful place to live by all accounts. There was a huge rate of alcoholism. It was almost a daily occurrence to see grown men sprawled on the floor all days of the week throughout the morning with the effects of alcohol. There was a very small Christian presence in the town. It was not a very safe place to be an evangelical Christian. So much so that the pastor of the one evangelical church at the time was threatened and held at gunpoint. The trigger was about to be pulled. He prayed silently to the Lord and miraculously the gun didn't go off. As a result of that, he redoubled his, his efforts and realized, well, if the Lord's kept me alive from that situation, he must have some, some really good plans for Alma Longa. So gradually he started up prayer meetings, regular times of prayer and fasting, long Saturday prayer vigils, and bit by bit the community of Alma Longa was transformed. It, there was a huge revival, and I vaguely remembered the, 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 the name, I got it wrong. I thought it was Alba Longa, but that's something from Roman history. But it's Almo Longa. Checked it out up online, thinking that the story must have faded out. Not a bit of it in the last 16, 17 years. There is an up-to-date, what I'm about to say is, is very much up-to-date. There wasn't just a revival with huge numbers going to church, many people becoming Christians. There were, in the mid-90s, four jails in Alma Longa. All of them have since closed. I've looked at an interview with the police chief, and he says, very simply, we don't have any jails because we don't have any crime anymore. Simple as that. Now, that would be absolutely tremendous in itself. But on top of that, there's a verse in Scripture which has been brought to reality in Alma Longa. It's 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their sin, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And that last phrase is the key. Because not only do we have this revival with people coming to the Lord in that particular community, not much bigger than Gillingham, but you had where the agricultural lead was, uh, yield was pretty paltry, huge harvests. So much so that instead of just about supporting the community, for, for many years now, Alma Longa has been known as the vegetable basket of Central America. And they export right throughout the country of Guatemala and even into southern Mexico and El Salvador, beyond the country's borders. And it's not just a question of an abundance of fruit it's, and vegetables. It's huge fruit and vegetable. And it really needs to be seen. You can check on YouTube videos. I saw this all those years ago, and it is still going on. It's not fizzled out one iota. And you will see huge cartloads of carrots, for instance, being transported. 
And we're not talking about tiny carrots that you'd see in the supermarkets. We are talking about carrots the size of a strong man's forearm. I'm not, I'm not joking, and plenty of them. This is the Lord's blessing. So it does happen, and it does happen today. And it did happen then. So, that, so what, when you read about the grapes being so big that they had to be, you needed poles with two strong men carrying them, that is abs- absolutely in line with what the Lord does do. So faith is reasonable and should lead automatically to faithfulness. The third thing is encouragement. Caleb and Joshua were courageous men. No two ways about it. And in the book of Joshua, Joshua is instructed as he succeeds Moses to be strong and courageous. It is clearly an important characteristic. But it is not the, the most crucial one. It follows from his, from his faith and his vision as it does with Caleb. So Caleb and Joshua drew courage from God and encouraged others. They were courageous warriors and they were willing and ready to fight. Caleb quieted the people before Moses, saying, let us go up at once and take possession, for we were well able to overcome it, and was prepared to take the threat of being stoned. Fortunately, it wasn't carried out. But he spread a good report, and we can do the same, that God is with us. Are we ready to encourage others in this way? Fourth thing is perseverance. An attitude or a spirit such as that of Caleb and Joshua comes with this very important quality. It says that in the book of Joshua that these two men not not only survived the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, whereas their contemporaries did not, but they received their inheritance in the promised land. Caleb followed God fully, it says in Joshua chapter 14. And it says that when Joshua became the the leader, Caleb received land around Hebron as his inheritance, which he had seen earlier. The spirit of Joshua and Caleb wasn't negative in any way. They weren't fearful of their enemies. They didn't speak negatively and didn't transfer the spirit of fear to to the people of Israel. Instead, they spoke with confidence and tried to encourage others not to fear but to believe that they could make it with God's help. In Joshua chapter 15, we referred earlier to the the sense of Anak. In taking possession of his inheritance, Joshua drove out. He dispossessed three sons of Anak, which we mentioned earlier, which in the end proves how irrational the fear of Anak was. Thereafter, there is no mention of Anak in Scripture. These terrifyingly tall men disappear from the scene. And finally, Joshua, Joshua, well, true of Joshua, but Caleb was a man of blessing. Again in Joshua, it says that he he received his inheritance, land in the area of Hebron, and his daughter asks for, please give me some springs of water as well. Springs are pretty important to, to water the land. And it says that Caleb gave her not just one lot of springs, but the upper and lower springs, two springs. He was blessed, and he became a blessing. He came into his inheritance, and then he was able to give it away, to pass it on to the next generation. So five characteristics of Caleb. Firstly, 
as a foundation. He was devoted, he was consecrated to the Lord. Then he had vision and faith and encouragement, perseverance, and ultimately, blessing. What's our response? Perhaps there are five things we could respond to for each of these five characteristics. One, asking for spiritual sight. In our prayers, asking the Lord to be able to see things as he sees them. When there seems to be an impossible challenge, how do you see this, Lord? Is it really impossible or is it something we need to wrestle through? Reading the word of God. This may sound all very basic, but it's crucial. It says all scripture is profitable and it will bring hope and help us to see things clearly from God's point of view. So asking for spiritual sight may be the first goal. Secondly, being faithful in prayer. Mark eleven twenty four says, believe that you have already received what you've asked for and it will be yours. But be persistent, be faithful. Thirdly, be an encourager. Be positive about people. Be positive about the community, the church you belong to. Be positive about Gillingham. Be positive about the area you live. Talk people up. Pass on a good report wherever you can. Fourthly, may sound obvious, never give up. God will refine us with setbacks along the way as he strengthened the people of Israel throughout the Exodus. And fifthly, just as Caleb was able to do to pass on good things to his children, pass on good things that you receive. Any good things from the, from the word, any good experiences. This is what we do a lot of in this, this, this church, passing on good things we've received during the week. And it might be good just to perhaps focus on, for the moment, one of those, those tasks. And in doing so, we will have a measure of Caleb's different spirit and be effective as the Lord's servant as we move on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Caleb and for Joshua. Thank you for men of a different spirit. And help us never to be ashamed to be people of a different spirit because you can do a tremendous transforming work in our lives by your Holy Spirit within us. It doesn't mean we're perfect, Lord, but it does mean that you are doing things in, in our lives. And help, help us, Lord, to submit to that spirit. Help us to focus on whatever we can do to allow that spirit to come to full fruition and to serve you effectively in the days to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.